Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Nudie Brains podcast. My name is Emily, again, and I'm the host of the podcast. Um, today, I was so excited about my interview that I was doing, I forgot to record an introduction. So I'll be interviewing Dr. Amanda Kahn, who is a new faculty member at my school and also a member of my thesis committee. And I have to say right now, if you are not already super excited about sponges, you will be by the end of this episode because Amanda is so excited about sponges and it's really great to talk to her and just see how passionate she is about science. So without further ado, um, I wanted to thank again my friend Nick who is at Subsurface Style on Instagram for the logo that he made me, um, Jared who is at Jared Chance Taylor who made the music for the introduction, and then you can follow me if you're interested at Emily the Marine Biologist on Instagram. Don't forget to download and subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any future episodes. And I hope you really enjoy this one. I'm sitting here with Amanda Kahn, Dr. Amanda Kahn, um, who is an invertebrate zoologist and is very passionate about sponges. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Amanda. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Yeah, Let's absolutely. Talk sponge. Okay. <laughs> well, first question: What is your favorite invertebrate? And oh. I think we already know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Ooh, um, it's sponges. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do we want to why? Yeah, absolutely. Oh man. Okay. So many reasons, but why I think sponges are really cool is because of their role in converting food energy from a source that other animals can't eat into one that animals can. So they actually act like oases in the ocean. They can eat bacteria, which are too small for other animals to eat, and they package it up into their own bodies or into sponge poop, and then that becomes food for all other animals in the animal food web that we're all familiar with. So I think that's really, really neat. That's so cool. Um, why did you start studying science in the first place, and specifically marine science? Because I know your path was a little bit different to get to marine science. than Right. Than, yeah. it, it was wandering. So... To get to science, I as a kid, I went to um, summer camps at the Don Edwards San Francisco Bay National Wildlife Refuge, um, and I was a junior naturalist, and I got to learn about, you know, nature and science, and I just had so much fun out there, and I thought this was the coolest thing. And so then fast forward to um, halfway through college, and I was pursuing biology and um, trying to find what it was that I really liked about biology. And I had always been interested in marine biology and never really found an easy path to go to get to it. So I went, okay, well, there are lots of other cool things. So I started in botany and I can't grow any plants. They all died. So I decided (laughs) botany wasn't the thing for me. Um, And then I went to biomedical engineering, which was a big thing that my undergraduate campus um, focused on. And that was fine. It was fine. <laughs> it just wasn't really, it didn't ignite that excitement yeah. um, that I needed. So I was doing fine at it. And then actually I was told by a faculty at my home campus to come to MLML for their open house. And so I um, drove down and checked out the MLML open house. I breathed on a scuba regulator and realized I could breathe <laughs> underwater. And uh, I just thought that all the work in marine science was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen and learned about. And so I decided to go get scuba certified and meet all the requirements needed to take the scientific diving class here at MLML as an undergrad. And I did that and that set the path and I took off from there. That's so cool. Was this the only school that you applied to then for graduate school or? It was not. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's the one I went to. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, So tell us a little bit about your research. 
Ah, oh, I kind of led into that with why I think sponges are so cool. Well, that's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so my research, um, I'm really interested in how animals eat and live and get enough food um, and kind of how that food gets around in the ocean. And so I um, actually spend a lot of my time thinking about the deep ocean, which can't have photosynthesis happen. And that sort of forms the basis of the food that's mm-hmm. in all of our other food webs in the world. Um, it's too dark and too deep for that. And so instead, all the deep sea animals rely on food coming in from elsewhere. And that means there isn't a lot to go around. And that's why you get these super bizarre deep sea adaptations, like <laughs> the fish with the eyeballs and the translucent head that they can look up yeah. and down. And, um, and uh, so in this place that's so inhospitable and such a food desert, you sometimes see animals that are clear winners or dominant. And sponges were one of the groups that just, there were a lot of sponges down there. Um, I did an internship at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute right before I started up at MLML as a graduate student. And I did a project looking at the deep seafloor and there were sponges all over the place. And uh, I focused on them and I was like, how can they, you know, I just kind of wondered how can they make a living down there if there isn't that much food to go around. So um, then when I started studying how they could eat bacteria, which other animals can't, and how... um, they turn that into sponge tissue, I thought, well, that's kind of cool. I wonder where that sort of food is going after it gets eaten by a sponge. And so now I track carbon and nitrogen, which are sort of the molecular components or the chemical components of food, and see where they come from and where they go and travel through the environment and specifically how animals make that happen. Mainly sponges so far, but I'm hoping to look at then how other animals do that as well. So um, fish pee has been (laughs) a really important source of nitrogen that fertilizes kelp forests and kelp growth. And so looking at things like invertebrate pee um, or just what invertebrates are eating and how they're converting things um, is kind of what I think would be super cool for looking at how animals affect chemical pathway, biogeochemistry, we call it, um, all around them. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. And you study deep sea uh, sponges. Do you collect those and then do your experiments in the lab, or do you do everything out on a boat being miserable and seasick? Ah, uh, you don't have to be miserable when you're seasick. It's part of the experience, (laughs) Um, though it's more fun when you're not. That's true. Um, I do both. Uh, lately I've been doing a lot out on the ships Mm -hmm. because I think it's best if you're out in the field studying your animal in its natural environment. Yeah. But sometimes you just can't get to the questions that you need to ask. So I do do lab work as well where we will collect the sponges, bring them back, and then I put them in aquaria and we'll sample their tissue or, um, look at how, how much water they're pumping through themselves using this bright fluorescent green non-toxic dye. It's very cool. Um, yeah, but uh, part of the fun of the past few years is has been figuring out how to take the approaches where I can do them physically with my own hands in the lab and adapt them to robot hands on yeah. a remotely operated vehicle and actually do it at, you know, the deep sea. Yeah, and do you get to drive that the remotely operated vehicle oh. yourself or do you have somebody who does it for you? I so wish I could drive the ROV <laughs> myself, but no, I am absolutely not qualified for that. <laughs> So yeah, um, when we go out, I sit in the science chair, um, and so the scientist gets to have a good view with the camera, and they let me zoom and focus the camera on what we need to see, but then there are two pilots uh, operating the remotely operated vehicle, and so one of them is flying and looking at where the ROV is in relation to the ship and the tether, and the other one is also looking at those things and is operating the arms, so when we need to use the hands and pull out an instrument, that person 
activates and uses these really cool like multi-jointed joysticks to operate the arm with all of its elbows and wrist joints and things. That's so cool. And how deep down does this happen? Um, The place that I'm working at right now is called Sir Ridge and it is an underwater mountain. So it is at the shallowest about 800 meters deep which is half a mile. Yeah. And then at the deepest is about 1,700 meters deep or a mile oh deep. Gosh. So yeah, it's it's pretty deep stuff. Um, and then I've also done work shallower. So mm. I studied sponge reefs, which are super cool environments that have, um, form up in the continental shelf up in Canada. And those are only <laughs> about 200 meters deep. Oh, is, only. You know, <laughs> still pretty deep. Yeah. Um, and then also there's a study site at the Abyssal Plain that we go to called Station M, and that one is 4,000 meters deep, which is over two miles. And that's the average depth of the ocean. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's pretty deep. <laughs> that's super cool. That's so interesting. Um, let's get into climate change stuff a little bit. So what do you think is the most important thing about our planet or climate that everyone needs to know about? Whoa, that's a hard question, Emily. <laughs> like, one, like, if you were to one. have a take-home message, what would it be? I think it's that it's a big problem and it needs a big cohesive solution. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I think that we all need to make changes in our lifestyles and be willing to do that, but we also um, really need to push to make changes at a larger scale. Um, so really getting companies and businesses involved is important and government. And that's probably not science related. So the big thing about science that I think people should know about with climate change is how much, um, sort of how broad reaching it is. So it's not just that the temperature is going to, well, is changing Mm -hmm. and is different in different regions, but what that means in terms of, um, sea level, in terms of the pH or acidity of the ocean, um, in terms of what species are found where and how that might affect, say, fisheries or food stocks. So the ocean is actually um, changing dramatically from a lot of different different perspectives as a result of climate change. And I think that's the thing to think about is it's not just this single problem. It's mm-hmm. a problem that has multifaceted sub problems. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of the times when we think about climate change, we think of what's happening on land or, you know, at the surface of the ocean, but can your sponges even be affected by climate change or pollution or anything like that? Have you seen evidence of that? Um, I have not studied that directly, but absolutely animals in the deep ocean are being affected by climate and climate change, mm-hmm. um, and by pollution. So, um, starting with climate change, um, the long-term study site that that we've been studying with Ken Smith's group at Station M, um, that, again, is 4,000 meters deep. It's far from the surface. And yet, even changes that happen on a seasonal scale, like changes in phytoplankton concentrations at the surface, have major effects on the populations that live at depth. So you end up with more and different species of sea cucumbers. And they've seen big shifts across, you know, whole decades. So these big shifts that we have in our climate are reflected on the animals, even that deep. So yes, climate affects it. So climate change will definitely affect deep sea animals as well. Yeah. And then in terms of pollution, yeah, there's nowhere that pollution doesn't reach. So um, I may not get the numbers exactly right, but um, there was a study published two years ago that looked at microplastics, um, and they were looking for microplastics in deep sea sediments. And they went back to um, a 
collections in museums of sediments, and they looked through those sediments, which had been collected since the 70s. And I think that the authors who did this study expected to see an increase over those years in the amount of plastics. Um, but what they found is that even in the 1970s, there were already microplastics in over half of the samples that they went through. Oh, gosh. And so it's a, it's a worldwide problem, and it's a big one that is growing um, and has been a problem for a while. So there's nowhere that is not safe from our um, from our pollutants. Oh, man. <laughs> so, and there's no chance yeah. that the sponges could take the plastics and turn them into food. And well, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> tell well, me more. <laughs> I don't. So um, <laughs> I was studying how sponges eat and what they poop out. And so I did feed sponges um, small amounts of microplastics to look at where those plastic beads went. It was a way that I could recognize it because otherwise, if you don't know what sponge poop looks like, how are you ever going to spot it? Yeah. So I looked for the little beads packaged up and I found that, yes, sponges love to eat those little plastic beads. Interesting. They could pull them from the water super efficiently, super quickly, enough so that I could add the microplastics to the water with a single sponge in it. And within 30 minutes, that water looked clear and the sponge tissue looked pink or green, whatever color the beads were. So the sponge did eat them. It did not digest them, yeah. so it packaged them up into some kind of mucus packet, a fecal pellet, Cute. and it put them out, but they <laughs> yeah. were still little intact beads. Um, and so I guess the way that sponges were affecting them is they concentrated them, they put them into a packet, and then instead of those individual microplastics drifting through the water, they were in this sponge poop that would sink onto the sediment mm-hmm. and get into the seafloor. So sponges are interacting with plastics, but I don't know that they're going to be the solution Um, I have talked to people who wondered if maybe they could use sponges as a filter. Like you clean the water and then you take the sponges out. Hey, that's a cool idea. I think that's something that somebody should really look into. Yeah. I haven't done it yet. Yeah. That's really exciting. Um, Let's see here. What uh, sort of knowledge or what statement would you say to a climate change denier? Okay. Well, first of all, (laughs) I get a little cranky. Sometimes (laughs) Sometimes <laughs> um, when I talk to them, because I think it's it's anti-intellectual. You're not. I'm not an expert in climate science, and neither are they, probably. And so I don't think that it's fair for either of us to have that conversation. I think that it's important to defer to the experts on things. So that's usually what I say: is if someone starts saying to me, "Well, what about the tree ring data?" I'll say, "You know what." I don't really know anything about the tree ring data. I'm not an expert in that. I study sponges. You tried to be a botanist. It didn't work exactly. out. Exactly. <laughs> I probably would have killed the already dead tree ring somehow. <laughs> um, so I think that's the main thing with, with, with denial of any kind of science topic or any kind of topic. Mm-hmm. If, you're not a, if, if you haven't done the research on it yourself, there are probably nuances that you just aren't aware of because it's not your field. It would be like me trying to give someone financial advice. Don't take it. I don't know what I'm talking about. And it's the same. Like, you know, I even don't know much about the nuances of climate. And I do study things that are affected by climate. So I have to think about it in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. Um, So just getting into a few more, like, questions on the more personal side. You're one of the most like happy, bubbly, excited about science people that I know. And I just want to know, like, where does that come from? Where do you like 
you know, channel your joy from? How do you remind yourself daily that you love science and that this is so cool? Because sometimes in graduate school, it's really hard to remember that. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I do love this stuff. And I think that totally helps. So, um, so (laughs) in seventh grade, a very, um, I was not wise, but I got lucky. I made a New Year's resolution that year that I would have a happy day every day for a year. And that doesn't mean you could have a good day every day for a year because stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just decided that I would try to find ways to be happy each day. And it was really good because it taught me that, yeah, stuff happens, but you can choose how you respond to it. And um, so I chose to respond to things and look at things in a more positive light. And so <laughs> that was a very prescient thing to do as a seventh grader, <laughs> yeah. but it was so good. It just, it really changed my perspective on a lot. So that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think is that I'm really lucky because I really love what I do. So there is a lot that isn't fun about my job and about my life. And like right now I have a paper deadline coming up and I'm super stressed about it. So when I'm getting super stressed, I think, well, at least I'm super stressed about this super awesome question. And wow, isn't this amazing? Like they, this is my job. Yeah. So there's <laughs> so, a way to frame it in your head. Exactly. Yeah. So it's all framing because there are crummy days and there's crummy stuff that you have to do. And um, yeah. And then also sometimes I'm not happy. I promise it happens. <laughs> Um, we were out doing field work in Norway, which already sounds amazing. Yeah. It was. But let me tell you, that was a hard trip. It was super, super rainy. And I was the only person there after a while. My collaborators had to leave. So it was just me trying to do way too much sampling. Oh, God! And so it was overwhelming and exhausting. And so there are periods where you just have to slog through. Um, And then you look back and you go, I was in Norway. That was pretty cool. (laughs) So, yeah, it's sort of take the good and um, on the bad times, reflect on the good. And also, if you get a eureka moment, you hold on to that feeling and you remember that at any time that you need that. So, um, January, uh, January 11th in 2013, oh, I wow. had a eureka moment. <laughs> I know, right? I know this. Um, time, 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 eight in the morning. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> kind of 745, but I had to wait till eight when my PhD advisor arrived. Okay. So I was a grad student and, um, I had been looking for, uh, the growth zone or actually I was looking, yeah, I was looking for new cells and new growth in, the sponges that I was studying. And I really, I just, I couldn't find it. I couldn't get it to work. And I kept on doing the same procedure over and over again and and it wasn't working. And then that morning, um, I went into the microscope early in the morning to try to get there before there was traffic on it. And I turned on the, the light and I looked in there and I went, oh my gosh, there are cells labeled. And that would have been fine because that's what I expected to have happen. But they didn't just label. They actually were labeled in a pattern that showed a growth band. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't know sponges grow in little like growth bands like that. And did this really work? Maybe this isn't. I don't know what's going on here, but these (laughs) cells are only labeled in this one spot. And so I waited sort of tapping my feet and staring at it until my PhD advisor arrived. And I said, Hey, I don't want to be too excited until you look, but can you look in this microscope? And she looked and she started dancing up and down. And so I started dancing up and down (laughs) and we realized, Oh my gosh, we had made this super cool discovery of not just where the sponge was growing, but how the sponge grows. And I know that that's not something that everyone would get excited (laughs) about, but this is what I was studying as part of my research and I had found it. Oh my gosh. So 
that Eureka moment, I still remember. You see how excited I got just yes, wiggling in my I'm chair excited. telling you about it. <laughs> yeah. That's, was that the last Eureka moment you had or, or was that just a really memorable one? That was a very memorable yeah. one. I actually had a Eureka moment a couple of months ago. Um, so that's the deadline for the paper that I'm uh, writing right gotcha. now. Um, I had a very big Eureka moment for that and uh, stay tuned because that paper will get submitted soon I'm, I'm sure so excited <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it'll be very neat it will change your perspective of sponges awesome mm-hmm. I'm very excited you've changed my perspective on sponges so much already um have you ever experienced any sort of issues or or difficulties because you're a woman in a male-dominated field yeah I have I I can't think of anyone I know who hasn't in that yeah. way um and, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's fine though. You just kind of, I mean, like being a woman, you just kind of have to move on and deal with it or push on. So yeah, there's definitely differences of expectations. Mm-hmm. There have been moments in meetings where, um, especially, uh, when I moved somewhere new, um, and I joined a new group that was very male dominated. I've never really, um, I don't know. I've never really watched carefully for any signs of anything because I haven't really had much trouble. But definitely with that group, I recognized that at first um, in the meetings, I got skipped over. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of one of those things people don't mean to do it necessarily, but it's a pattern. And you once you recognize it, then you have to address it. And you don't necessarily, I mean, you could say something about it directly to people, or you just make sure that you're a little louder and a little yeah. bit more forceful than maybe you would otherwise be. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I just want to say because I think that it's important to note is that sexism doesn't only come from men. Absolutely. So um, the most sexist interaction that I had to deal with came from another woman in yeah. science. And it was a shocker, right? You feel a little bit like your support network is um, not there at that yeah. moment. Um, so, you know, just uh, I don't know. Just be don't a good human. Don't take it personally. Yeah, don't. Be nice to people. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, don't take it personally. There are things that uh, you can't, you hope will change. And you might be able to call people out on it, but you may also not. So on that note, I do call people out on it if uh, I catch it. Yeah. I sometimes I'm not ready for it. Um, so I had one interaction where someone made a racist comment about Whoa. a collaborator. Yeah, you can imagine my shock. Like, people don't do that. Yeah, no. They don't say these things. So the first time that the collaborate, the one person said something, I didn't, I was a little too shocked to do anything. Yeah. But the next time he said something, I shut it right down. I was, you know, I said, you can't say that and we're not going to have this conversation because that's not appropriate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of ways that you can approach these things. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, let's get into some like happy, happy things after that. Well, kind of happy. Um, I want to know your tips for um, avoiding seasickness because I know that that's a problem that you deal with and I'm sure you have a lot of tips for people. Emily, I solved it. You solved it? Yeah. Well, for me. Um, okay. So uh, it's, it's to try a lot of different things. There are so many different remedies that you can try. And so it really is very person dependent. Yeah. What what remedy or what combination of remedies works. So for me, um, I, for a very long time, tried using bonine, which Mm -hmm. is meclizine. um, And that one is considered non-drowsy. It's supposed to be really, really effective. It does nothing for me. Oh, no. But it does make me super, super, super sleepy. So I would take a bonine, go scuba diving, get seasick, 
and then take like a three hour nap because the boning just knocked me out. Yeah. And so it was rough. Um, and then at some point I, I've tried lots of different things. Like one is to put a paper bag in your waistband and then you're supposed to be able to feel the motion of the waves more. Oh, I've tried using pressure point bands mm-hmm. and little electroshock bands that go on your wrists. I don't know if those work. I'm told those work really well. Um, I had, I had to lend mine to someone who was sicker than me, so I didn't get to test those. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the one that works for me is regular Dramamine. Really? So the huh. drug is dimenhydrinate and yeah. it says that, or people say that it's supposed to make you more drowsy than meclizine, but not me. That's it good. does not make me drowsy and it definitely works way, way better for me for getting seasick. So yeah, for the past year, I actually can go out to sea and not throw up every single time, which is amazing. That's great. Cause I know you went out on the Nautilus expedition and I was really concerned about you out there. Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> I did get sick on that ship. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> it's very rolly, but yeah, the Dramamine helped a ton. So most days I was okay. It was Good. just on the roughest. Good. We're going back out again on the I Nautilus. I know by the way. that's going to be so, and you're going to, I am going to, and I'm so going to have a birthday on a ship. I'm so excited excited at that idea. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How fun. Well, I remember last year they had Halloween on the ship and everyone was taking candy around. That was really cute. It so. was super fun. We all made costumes and some people brought costumes. Holy cow. They were prepared. There were some people who were angler fish. I remember. Yes. That was really cool. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up. I know you prepared some obscure facts for us or facts or interesting facts. So if you'd like to share those. I would. It's a little bit of potty talk, but this is what happens with invertebrates. So everybody, this is why I think invertebrates are so cool. When you look at like a cow or a human or a vertebrate, right? A fish, you don't have to ask the question, does it have a head? Does it have a mouth? Does it have a full digestive system with a mouth to the anus at the other end? Like you don't ask those questions because other than, you know, a cow has four stomachs, but it still has stomachs mm-hmm. and it has a mouth and has an you, you get to ask that question with every single invertebrate <laughs> you look at. So I want to tell you about um, anuses <laughs> because there are some weird ones. So, um, you know, we are familiar with a mouth going through a digestive tract to an anus at the end. Yep. And so food goes in through the mouth and then it exits out the other side. So um, not all animals have both sides. So you could have something like a sea anemone, which has a mouth. And a stomach, but then there's no anus, so the food has to come back out after, or the digest, undigested material. Um, and then you could have things that only sometimes have an anus. So those are uh, comb jellies, tenophores. Yeah. They actually have what's called a transient anal pore, which um, just opens up when they need it. They poop, and then they heal closed again. And hmm. so, yeah. And finally, the one that I really wanted to get at by telling all this, I just learned about a worm that lives inside of the canals of sponges that has one mouth and many different anuses. And that's a really (laughs) weird thing, right? Where does the food go? How do you know which way it goes? And this is the way that the the worm can branch into the different um, canals and pathways in the sponge. And so all of those rear ends come and come out of the the holes or the pores of the sponges and can sort of snuffle around on the surface. I don't know what they do up there because they're just a bunch of (laughs) bums. But yeah, um, and so it's just a really cool, weird thing. And it's cool to think about, like, how does that happen? Because most of the time when you think about an animal forming, you think of one mouth, one digestive system, maybe four stomachs, 
and an anus. But here you have something that has branching guts, and that's just so cool. Evolution is so weird. (laughs) It's so cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for um, letting me interview today for the podcast, and I hope to have you back at some time soon, especially after your paper comes out, so we can talk about that, too. Let's talk about sponges again. Yes, that sounds sounds great. great. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you, Emily.